Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Second uh, Samuel chapter 8. We want to conclude the, um, the series that we've been teaching on the life of David tonight, and we want to cover um, five chapters. There are a lot of things that we won't be talking about regarding David's life, and uh, particularly the last part of his life, but we'll explain why as we go and, and, uh, uh, and, and show you what our, our purpose is. Uh, the first three chapters we'll cover pretty quickly, 8, 9, and 10. Um, the, the background for this information is that uh, chapter 7 ends with David's um, prayer of thanksgiving and, and covenant with God um, in that God says that I don't want you, David, to, to build me the temple. It'll be your son that does so, and, and I'll make sure that the rule doesn't leave your house and, and so forth. And so the, there's a, some wonderful scriptures in chapter 7 about David's uh, heart of gratitude toward the Lord. And then uh, immediately following that, it says in chapter 8 that he began to expand the kingdom. Uh, it says, the uh, chapter 8, verse 1, he smote the Philistines and subdued them. Uh, verse 2, he said he smote the Moabites and he measured them with a line, casting them even to the ground in two lines and made some of them his servants. What that means is he killed part of the Moabites and kept some of them alive to, to serve uh, Israel. And uh, then it says that he killed um, uh, or uh, that he defeated uh, the king of Zobah. It talks about uh, the 34,000, I think it was, uh, man army that he defeated there and uh, then the the syrians and he defeated them and he uh, he strengthened israel's rule and reign even in syria and uh, there are two key verses in chapter 8 i want you to see them it's verse 6 and verse 14 the last part of verse 6 and the last part of verse 14 it says and the lord preserved david whithersoever he went it says exactly the same thing at the end of verse 17 uh, verse 14 after he uh, puts garrisons in edom what this means is he's putting military outposts and and uh, leaving uh, military forces in these lands that he uh, is uh, conquering to expand the kingdom of Israel. Israel has a greater territory under David than any other time under any other, uh, any other personage. And uh, it says specifically that the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. What that means is God was behind the expansion of Israel. God was in, it was the will of God for these things to be done. And David can't lose. Everything that he does and everywhere that he goes, he turns out to be a military genius, not so much because of himself, but because he's in the will of God. And it's just one, one battle after another. Now, we don't know if, uh, you know, the time span uh, of these things, the, uh, the, the times and the years and the ages of these people is, uh, is a little blind to us. We can make some assumptions, but it's almost like David is, in the, is flowing in the will of God. And it's, and it's an interesting thing. I want you to, to, to pay attention to the, the situation that David's in. David can do no wrong, or so it seems. Everything he puts his hand to, God prospers. He's got uh, the things of God and the plan of God first and foremost in his, his uh, mind and heart. And, uh, and everything he does just works wonderfully, just works wonderfully. And so the, the kingdom of Israel is, is pushed out and expanded just about everywhere that it can go. And then uh, chapter 9 tells about how that David decides that he wants to um, uh, search out and find out if there are any descendants of Saul. Now, remember, Saul was the one that persecuted David for about 13 years because Saul knew that God had chosen him, David, to be king instead of Saul himself. And so he's trying to do away with David so that the plan of God can't come to pass. But God keeps preserving David even when David makes mistakes. The Bible gives us a lot of information about David's mistakes. In the, um, uh, particularly in the first 13 years uh, from when he's about 15 to 17 years old up until he's about 30 when he becomes king, 
The Bible tells us about several times where David seeks the advice of others instead of inquiring of the Lord, and it gets him in trouble. But God always preserves him. He always bails him out. He always preserves him. Then when he becomes king, he starts making some of the same mistakes. He acts impulsively, but he learns. He grows up a little bit, I guess, learns from his mistakes. And now he's in a position where, man, everything that he does is just working almost like magic, or it seems so. So he sends, he finds one descendant of Saul's house, Saul who should be his enemy by natural thinking. But he shows kindness under the one descendant of Saul's house. Chapter 10 tells us about when the the king of Ammon died. And David said, well, he was always good to me and his son is going to rule in his place. Ammon was always good to me or the king of Ammon was always good to me. And so I'll send some people to the funeral. Kind of like us sending the vice president across to a foreign country when there's a, uh, a funeral or a memorial for a world leader. David sends a couple of his servants there, but the, the son of the king thinks that these guys have come to spy out their land to, to conquer them. So they treat them shamefully. They shave off half their beards and they cut off half their clothes so that they're half naked. And these guys are sent back to David. Now, you got to wonder, what is this guy thinking? I mean, nobody can beat David. But as is so often the case, People that are outside the will of God don't recognize when God's working, when God's moving. So David finds his servants. He hears the story. It's related back to David. So he goes to where they are because they were embarrassed and they they didn't want to come back into the city of David and so forth. Didn't want to come back to Jerusalem. So David says, well, you guys just stay here in Jericho until your beards grow out so that you're not ashamed anymore. And then David unleashes hell on Ammon. He goes and he conquers the Ammonites. The Syrians come out against him. The, the Ammonites find out or just realize that David didn't take very kindly to their joke or their treatment of his servants. And so they hire the Syrians and they hire like 40,000 soldiers. And David goes, David's army, Joab's the, the general. David goes and wipes them out. Just completely wipes them out. I mean, there's nobody can lift a hand against Israel as long as David is operating in the will of God. Now, folks... There's a very, very important parallel there for us. You get in the will of God and you have the favor of God on you like there is nothing to compare. You get outside of the will of God and searching to find the favor of God is a tough find. If we just learn that and submit our will to him and to his, we'd be better off. Now that brings us to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is going to be a very, very important story. Because David's life changes. At this point in time, David's 50 to 52 years old, we think. He's been uh, the king of Israel. Well, he was anointed by Samuel the prophet when he was about 15 years old. He's been running from Saul. He uh, defeats Goliath at 16 or 17, somewhere around there. He runs from Saul from about age 17 to age 30, where he's crowned king of Israel. Then he spends about 20, maybe 22 years or so, as the king of Israel, and things change. Everything changes. turns on a dime. Now, notice in chapter 11, verse 1, and it came to pass after the year was expired. That means after winter is gone. It's springtime. At the time when the kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Why? Now, folks, commentaries, books have been written for why David stayed at Jerusalem. Why did he stay? 
Is he tired of winning battles? Has it become ho-hum? Is he just undefeatable? And so now he's looking for a new stimulation in life. He just stays at Jerusalem. We don't know why. Maybe he was caught up in his own success. Maybe he's just tired. Tired of the grind. I've been going out to battle every year for 30 years. Tired of doing this. Let's take, let's take a break. We don't know. But he stayed at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening time, evening tide, that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. We know this is the story of Bathsheba. Now, there's a, there's a phrase in verse 2 that we just read over that's easy to miss. Eventide means late afternoon, early evening. And notice it said David got out of bed in late afternoon, early evening and saw Bathsheba washing herself. What's he doing in bed until late afternoon? It seems to indicate, and you decide for yourself, but it seems to indicate that the only reason David stayed in Jerusalem is he just wanted to rest. He just wanted to take it easy. Man, everything's going so good. The kingdom has expanded. God has helped me defeat all of my enemies. There's really nobody left to fight as much of anybody anymore. So I'm just going to stay in and catch up on my TV shows. I'm going to power watch on Netflix the series that I've been missing all these years that I've been at war. That's what it says. He got up in late afternoon and saw Bathsheba. Now, I have no, no doubt whatsoever I mean, it's not like Bathsheba's house has moved in the time that the armies have gone out to battle. I have full confidence that Bathsheba is operating in such a way where she expects David and everybody else from the palace to be gone. I mean, otherwise, when does she take her baths? He's never seen her before. The implication is David's the one that's in the wrong place. And folks, getting out of place is one of the most dangerous things you can do in your life. So David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the, um, uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, apparently he sends to his servants, somebody's in the palace and says, hey, who is that girl? Oh, that's Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which should have been enough to answer his question. But David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him and he lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Uh Uh-oh. Now, what is David going to do now? David conspires. The the Bible says in in James, it talks about the progression of lust. It It talks about what your eyes see and then what your heart desires. And the implication is, the instruction for us is, don't let your eyes see it. Don't look and think that you can change your heart or keep your heart from going towards something that you see. Don't see it. That's sometimes easier said than done, but it's the best information, the best advice that any of us could ever have. So David takes her, finds out that she's now with child. And so David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. Now, I want you to notice something here. It's subtle, but you need to realize what David's doing. David is buttering Uriah up. He's saying, 
It's you and only you that I can listen to to find out how things are really going on. Why didn't he send for a word from Joab? Why didn't he send one of his messengers just to find out and come back to him? No, it's got to be Uriah that tells him the story. He's trying to stroke his ego. Uh, Verse 8, and David said to Uriah, go down to the house and wash thy feet. That means sleep with your wife. And Uriah departed out of the king's house and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. Now David's sending a feast with him. Take this to your wife. Well, we all want to impress our spouses with good things, don't we? Take this to your wife. But Joab won't do it. I'm sorry, but Uriah won't do it. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. In other words, he stayed in the men's barracks. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down to his house, David said unto Uriah, came you not from your journey? Why then did you not go down into your house? In other words, he's saying, haven't you been away from home for a long time? Go see your wife. Why didn't you go? And Uriah said unto David, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. I want you to notice that although David has been operating under the hand of God and by the favor of God, Uriah has a greater character in this situation than David does. Now, David automatically assumes, I mean, about she was a beautiful woman. Here's his wife. Surely he would want to go and spend the time with his wife. But his character, Uriah's character, won't allow him to do it because he knows he should be back at the battle. He knows he should be where David should be too. So David said to Uriah, well, stay another day. And tomorrow I'll let you depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him and made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie with his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. Stayed another night in the men's barracks. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battles and then back up from him. Leave him alone, strand him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah into a place where he knew that the valiant men were. That means the enemy, the strongest part of the enemy's forces. And the men of that city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Now, folks, you need to understand something. David's not used to losing men. When we talk about the favor of God being upon Israel and David winning battles and and defeating 35,000 men armies and 40,000 men armies, he's not losing any men when this happens. This is not a matter of David loses 20 but defeats 40. It's a very unusual thing for Israel to lose anybody in battle, and that's due to the hand of the Lord upon them. Very unusual. I mean, they might lose two or three in any battle or any skirmish or something like that, but it was very uncommon. If you lose 10 or 12 people, something is wrong. And that's the way the Lord fights for his, those that are in his charge. So Joab puts Uriah in the heat of the battle. Uriah dies along with other soldiers of Israel, which would be a clear indication that something is wrong here. 
So Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger that he sends, saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the matter of the war, matters of the war unto the king, and if it be so that the king's wrath arise, why would the king's wrath arise? Because other men have died too. David's planned out this elaborate scheme to get rid of Joab. I mean, to get rid of Uriah. But he didn't plan for anybody else to die. So this is going to be bad news, and Joab knows it. So he says, if he gets mad about the other guys dying, tell him. Uh, well, he goes on, he says, if it so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, wherefore approached ye so nigh unto the city when you did fight? Did you not know that they would shoot down from the wall? Which must be the way they died. Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth, did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh under the wall? Then he said, if this is what happens, now realize what's going on. Joab puts Uriah in a situation that is militarily foolish. He put him right up against the walls of the city that they were attacking so that he would be killed with one purpose in mind, and that is so that this guy would be killed because that's what David instructed him to do. So he knows that David's going to be upset when he finds out that other people died because they were too close to the wall. And there was a, there was a, a, a history lesson. The, the, the war manual even said, don't get too close to the walls because Abimelech did that. And even a woman threw down a piece of pot on top of his head and killed him. You don't get too close to the walls. That's what this is all about. He said, if the king gets mad and says that, and he did, he said, say unto the king, thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us in the field, and we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. That means we got real close to the walls where the gate was. And the shooters, the archers, shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then said David unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, let not this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle more strong against the city and overthrow it and encourage thou him. In other words, he's saying, make sure you tell Joab, don't worry about it. You know, we lose it. Every now and then, some people have to be lost. People have to be sacrificed for the greater good. Just make a better war plan and take the city next time. Now, folks, realize where David has gone from. David is the one that's after God's own heart. David is the one that in chapter 7 is, is, is magnifying God and, and singing these songs of praise because of the covenant that God has made with him, saying, you know, your son will build the temple. Your dream of the temple will be realized, but not through you, but through your son. And the, the rules shall not depart from out of your house. He's telling him the son, the Messiah, is going to be through your house. He'll be a descendant of yours. He's offered him everything. And David follows that, willingly follows the plan of God, and everything he touches turns to gold. Victory on every hand. And then all of a sudden, he sees the wrong thing, starts making the wrong plans, follows through on those wrong plans, winds up having to kill Bathsheba's husband in the process. Now, David has gotten to the point where he's willing to even sacrifice other soldiers for what purpose? So that his sin is not found out. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're Joab, what are you thinking? David's trying to kill Uriah. Now, David's a king. He could have him put to death. 
David could execute judgment against Uriah. He could make up a charge. He could make up something in Jerusalem. He could say the reason I sent for him is because I found out that he did something wrong, make up some kind of charge and have him executed. He's the king. But the fact that he's doing this would signal to Joab, something doesn't smell right here. And whatever this thing is with Uriah, he doesn't know. He finds out when he gets back to Jerusalem what it's all about. But whatever is going on with this situation with Uriah, I'm going to be the only one that knows what's happening here. Joab's life's in danger too. Anybody that's willing to kill one person to keep a secret is willing to kill another. Aren't they? Verse 26. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, I would say so. Look how far David's fallen. And he doesn't even know that he's fallen. Chapter 12 tells about Nathan the prophet going over back to, to David by the word of the Lord and, and fixing the situation or, or pronouncing God's intent in this situation. But about a year has passed. We don't know exactly how long, but the, but the child that Bathsheba is pregnant with is already born. So somewhere in the neighborhood of nine months or a year has passed. David's been out of fellowship with the Lord for that period of time and doesn't seem to be concerned about it. You know, I, I, um, I, I, I think I'm safe in saying this. I know this is certainly true in my own life. It's not the sin that you're tempted with that's the issue. It's the fellowship that it causes you after you commit it. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two rich men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. Now, folks, I want you to pay attention to this story. Um, You may be familiar with it already. But the lesson of chapter 12 is as much about Nathan, the wisdom of God, and how Nathan addresses the situation as it is about David and what happens. Because we all know people that are in situations just like David. They may not have done the same things, but they've committed sin. They've backslidden, and now they're out of fellowship with God. And, and to tell them that they're backslidden and they're out of fellowship with God is going to do nothing more than make them mad and make them defensive. We have no reason to think that Nathan knows anything about this except by revelation of the Holy Ghost. So he said, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb, which he had brought and nourished, bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children and did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom as w- and was unto him as a daughter. In other words, he raised it like a child. Ate from the table, slept in the bed with him. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared not to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. Margin, my Bible says, deserves to die. But I'm, I kind of like the King James translation on this one, to be honest with you. 
it's interesting that David cares more about somebody else's lamb than he did about somebody else's wife. David had the opportunity, and Nathan's going to reveal to him that this man is you. David had the same opportunity before he ever committed sin to look at Bathsheba and say, wow, she's pretty, but now wait a minute. Look at what God's done for me. Look at all that he's blessed me with. Why would I want to risk that? Why would I want to sin against God when he has done so much for me? Uriah's not living in a palace. Uriah's not the king. God's not done the same thing for Uriah as he did for us. Uriah's not even a Jew. He's a Hittite. He's just blessed because he serves the man of God, which is David. David had the same opportunity to think through this thing in the same way that he does after Nathan comes to him as before he ever committed sin. Why doesn't he? That brings us back to the question, why did David not go to battle? I can't give you a definitive answer on that, but I know this. I know that David's sin, well, David's mistake before he ever committed sin was that he did not put on his armor. Now, there's a spiritual application with that, certainly. Because if David had gone to war, like kings go, at the time of year that he was supposed to be going, and expected to be there with his men, he would have girded himself. He would have put on his armor. David sinned because he didn't wear his armor. And at the very least, we could say that he was not disciplined in his duty. Whatever his reason. He broke down from doing that which he was obligated by his office and by what God had anointed him to do to carry out. Now he's in a situation where a story, he assumes the story is true, I guess. Nathan's telling it like it really happened. He said, the man that did this shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. Easy to judge others, isn't it? And Nathan said to David in verse 7, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. The margin of my Bible says many more like these. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Folks, I want you to notice, God always talks to you about him and you. He always talks to you about your relationship with him. He always talks to you, and the relationship that we have with him is through his word. The Bible, uh, the, um, uh, the experience that we have with God is that God doesn't talk to us about why did we do wrong to somebody else. He always talks to us about why would, why did we disobey the commandment. Why, would, why did we refuse to walk in love? Why did we refuse to do what he told us to do, what he spoke to our hearts to do, whatever the case is? He always speaks to us about us and him, the relationship between us and him. The part that it applies to other people, you fix that later on. You have to fix the relationship with you and God first. So he said, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Verse 10 and 11 and verse 14 notices the judgment. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house 
because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thy own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them to thy neighbor, and he shall lie with the wives in the sight of the sun. Now, what was David's intent all along by getting, trying to get Uriah to come back and cover his sin and then finally sentencing him to death? He was trying to keep his sin from being found out. That never works. It just doesn't work. Your sin will find you out. It's better just to own up to it on the beginning, on the front end. Say, oh, man, I messed up. Forgive me, Lord. Before I go any further, forgive me. One of the hardest lessons to learn as a Christian, at least it was for me, is that when you mess up, to run to God instead of run away from him. Because running to him is so much better. You can avoid so much heartache by running to him. You can avoid so much heartache by not turning against him to begin with. But even when we do mess up, he's there to help us. Verse 11 again. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. By the way, like we said, David is 50 to 52 years old at this point. This is not the youthfulness of a young man, a young man's lust that he takes Bathsheba. This is well calculated, well thought out, well planned. And for the next 18 to 20 years until he dies, after ruling and reigning over Israel for 40 years, He has a constant battle from within his house and among his children. Constant battle. One mistake cost him 20 years of heartache. And in many cases, the death of his children. No matter how much God is using you. And folks, I see this with a lot of people in ministry. I mean, it's, you see the anointing on them. You see the the hand of God upon them. You see their ministry growing and stuff like that. And it's so easy for people that are used of God to think, I can do no wrong in anything I do, anything I say, God's behind. And so they start making a pass, giving themselves a pass. They start making exceptions for themselves. It's like the word applies to everybody else except them. But then they fall. And when they fall, great is the fall thereof. Thus saith the Lord, verse 11 again, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. That was David's whole point, is try to keep things quiet. After he messed up, let's cover it up, let's keep it quiet. God said, no, because you tried to keep it quiet, I'm going to show it in the open open light of day let me ask you a question how concerned does god seem to be about david's sin he's not worried about keeping things quiet see we sometimes think that when we want to keep things quiet keep it covered up we're doing god a favor god doesn't seem to be too concerned about it god doesn't say to david you know if it was anybody but you then i'd make this known publicly but since it's you and since you're my anointed one you're the one after my own heart we want to keep this quiet. Tell you what, we'll just cover this up and you and I can deal with it once you get to heaven. Might be the way that we'd want it to be, but God doesn't seem to be too concerned about the exposure of something. 
Now, here's David's character. He's been out of fellowship with God for a year. But when David finally sees, he's been blinded by his own sin. And a lifetime of a testimony. Think about all the times where it says, and David grew in wisdom and operated, behaved himself wisely. And, and all these things that it talks about the hand of the Lord upon him and God preserving him and, and blessing him and, and prospering him and whatever he did. All the verses that we've read for the last, what, 23 years? worth of scripture all of those things have somehow gone out the window now david says unto nathan i have sinned against the lord at least he owned up to it i have sinned against the lord he could have done that early on you know he could have brought uriah back and said i've sinned against god and i've sinned against you now we've got a problem tell me what we can do about this that would have been better than killing his friend still would have been a problem but not the problem it turned out to be. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also has put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Now here, this is an amazing part. Because God said, because you tried to keep this covered up, I'm going to expose it publicly. God's not worried about his reputation. God's not worried about his own reputation is what I mean. David's responsible for his reputation. But God's not worried about his own We seem to have the idea so often that we're trying to do things so that we don't bring reproach on the name of Jesus. Well, the best way to do that is live in a godly manner. We don't have to protect God's reputation. But David owns up to it, and he said, I've sinned against the Lord. And God immediately, as soon as David says, I sinned, God immediately puts it away. The Lord has put away your sin. That's it. We seem to, sometimes want to drag it out, feel guilty for a week. Spend a few days doing the right thing again until we feel better about ourselves. But notice how God handles this. David says in, in, in the sin of adultery, the sin of murder, and whatever else is involved, David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, yeah, God put it away. Gee, that didn't seem too hard. You'll surely not die. But now there is, there is a consequence. There's a difference between forgiveness of sin and the consequence of your sin. Nathan does not say, well, God has put away your sin and nobody will ever know. Or that there won't be a consequence. Notice verse 14. How be it? Even though God's put it away, even though he did it instantly when David confessed it, And this is how confession works, folks. This is what 1 John 1, 9 is all about. When we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. How fast? This looks instant. Doesn't it? How be it? Sometimes there's a consequence for sin, even though God has forgiven us. How be it? Because because by this deed, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child that is born unto thee shall surely die. Now hold your finger here. Turn with me over to Psalm 51. Because this is the psalm that David writes. First psalm he's written in a year or more. This is the psalm that he writes when Nathan comes and tells him the story and he repents. Psalm 
Psalm 51, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Folks, confession of sin is important to get forgiven of them. He says, wash me and cleanse me from my sin because I've acknowledged it. It wasn't forgiven until he acknowledged it. Against thee, verse 4, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not making an excuse. He's just saying I gave in to it. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts shall thou make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, folks, verse 11 has been used wrongly to develop different kinds of doctrines in the modern day church a lot of people will say well, when you send the holy spirit it grieves the holy spirit and he departs from you i want you to notice that even though david didn't have the holy spirit in him all he had was the anointing of god on him the spirit of god didn't leave him if the spirit of god had left him he wouldn't have had to say cast me not away from your presence and take not away your holy spirit from me he's still upon him he's still with him even under the old covenant But it's supposed to be different and worse under the new covenant? Of course not. Holy Spirit doesn't leave you when you sin. It breaks fellowship, but it doesn't break relationship. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. In other words, David is saying, let somebody learn from this. It's too big a price being paid for it not to bless or help somebody else. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion, build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness and with burnt offering and the whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bullocks upon thine altar. What sacrifice should David have made? He should have sacrificed what he was looking at and turned away. The sacrifice of righteousness is what he should have made. Man, my flesh sure wants to go find out about this good-looking lady over there taking a bath. But I'm going to do what's right. That's the sacrifice to make, is presenting your body a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Back to Second Samuel 12, verse 15. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that was the Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. It came to pass on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, Yeah, he is. 
Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house and when he had required, they set bread before him and did eat. And we'll talk about the rest of this in a minute. But I want to point something out to you. This is the only time in the Bible where it tells us about a prayer that was not answered. Only place. Only prayer in all of the scripture, New Testament, Old Testament, every place, where a prayer, specific prayer was prayed and did not get an answer. Why is David praying? God's already said the child's going to die. Now, I've got a problem with the translation where it says God struck the child. I just simply think that means, knowing the character and the nature of God, I simply think that means God's protection was not upon the child because of, because of uh, David's sin. And so sickness overtook it. The favor of God is not upon the child. God has already declared that the child was dead. So it's free. It's a free target. It's an open season for sickness or disease or some kind of plague to take the child, which is what happened. I don't believe that it was God making him sick because if, if God's making the child sick, where does he get the sickness to make him sick? There's no sickness in heaven. So however you want to interpret that, the child dies after seven days. David tries to change it. Even though he's heard the word of the Lord, David tries to change it. Sometimes you can change things. Hezekiah did this. Isaiah went to Hezekiah's, Hezekiah was king of Israel. Isaiah went to Hezekiah and said, Thus saith the Lord, set your house in order, for thou shalt surely die. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and changed it. He prayed. He said, Lord, remember, I put you first. I tore down the idols, the groves and the idols and, and the things of, our, of the other wicked kings. And God told Isaiah before he even got out of the courtyard, go back and tell him I'll give him 15 more years. What happened? Did God change his mind? No, Isaiah changed the circumstances. I'm sorry, Hezekiah changed the circumstances through prayer. Isaiah simply says, thus saith the Lord, under the present circumstances, you're going to die. Hezekiah changed the circumstances through prayer. He changed the attitude of his heart. He changed the condition of his, his, uh, his intent and his will toward God. Hezekiah changed things. So God said, well, now the circumstances are different. I'll give you 15 more years. David's trying to change things, but he can't. You can't always. Some things you can change. Not everything. So the servants are really perplexed by David's change of behavior. They're thinking that he should mourn after the child dies, not while he was sick. But he said, the servant said unto him, what is this thing that thou hast done? For thou did fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou did rise and eat bread. Shouldn't you be mourning right now? And David said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? In other words, who knows? Maybe I can change this. It's worth a shot. But now that he's dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go unto him, but he shall not return unto me. What does David know about this child? He knows he'll see him again. He knows he's in the hand of God, even though David's sin cost him his life here on the earth. He knows he's in the hand of God. I'll go to him. But he, can't, he won't be coming back to me. Then the Bible tells us about the favor of God upon David, the favor of God upon Bathsheba. He's not holding their sin against them. They give birth to a child. It becomes, it's Solomon. Who becomes the king after David. Now let me show you something about this. Turn with me over to 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings chapter 15 is verse 5. I believe it is. This is spoken of David after his death. 
It says, because David did, um, well, let me back up to verse 4. It says, nevertheless, for David's sake did the Lord his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem, talking about Solomon, to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save or accept only the matter of Uriah the Hittite. This is something that marked David for the rest of his life. It marked David in the eyes of God. Now, like I said before, we've got a lot of examples where David made mistakes in his life. David did some dumb things. He inquired of other people, sought their counsel instead of inquiring of the Lord. He got himself into vines, and God bailed him out time after time after time after time after time. But we don't have any of those things that displease the Lord. David made those things right, and those didn't stand against him. But this one thing cost David's peace For the last 20 or so years of his life, it cost him the lives of many of his children when they began fighting over the the throne and, and that kind of stuff. Same thing with the wives because they're taking sides against the other children and the other mothers. It became a, a, a constant upheaval for the remainder of his life. One moment changed the course of his life. One moment changed his testimony. He's still the one that we think of as a man after God's own heart. But every time we think of David, we think he's a man after God's own heart. We think he's the one that took Bathsheba. Folks, a life's work can be destroyed in an instant. You've always got to be on your guard. No wonder the Bible says, put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the wiles, the trickery, the traveling over the devil. Let me show you one last thing, though, to show you God's attitude toward David. First Chronicles chapter 29, here's the, the end of David's life. I'll start reading in First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 26. It says, Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all of Israel. And the time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years reigned he in Hebron, and 30 and 3 years reigned he in Jerusalem. And he died in a good old age, full of days. Riches and honor and Solomon, his son, reigned in his stead. That was David's death, even though the last 20 years of his life was marred by violence in his own home. There are a lot of things to learn about David, a lot of things that we can follow his example, a lot of things we can learn from his mistakes. Interesting, David's one of the ones that the Bible speaks of in several places. Jesus speaks of David in the New Testament. Paul speaks of David. Peter speaks of David. New Testament writers are inspired by the Holy Ghost. And I don't want to say it that way. The Holy Ghost held David in remembrance. And of all the things that we see that he messed up with and the the mistakes that he made in the Old Testament, there's never one of his mistakes mentioned in the New Testament. When God wipes things away, they're wiped clean. Now, there may be a consequence for sin. There may be an earthly consequence, a natural consequence for the things that we do, even though God forgives us. That's that's one of the things you hear people talk about sometimes where somebody goes to prison and gets saved. Well, what should we do with somebody who gets saved? A lot of times people without any knowledge of, of how things work, sometimes people think, well, we ought to release them from prison. Well, sometimes the prison is the consequence of their sin. Doesn't mean God holds it against them. Doesn't mean they're not made new. Doesn't mean they don't have a place in heaven. 
because of the relationship that they have with Jesus now, but sometimes there's a consequence for sin. And you can't always change that. If David couldn't change it, it's hard for us to think that we're going to too. Thank God for the privilege that we have to walk in righteousness. Thank God for the strength that we have to overcome any and every temptation. Now, don't lie to yourself and tell yourself when you're tempted that you don't have the strength to overcome because you always do. I think one good thing to keep in mind is what is the unforeseen consequence of what the devil is tempting me with? That's the thing that always brings me back to center. My whole life could be destroyed on something here. Now, the devil will tell you, oh, no, nothing. It won't be anything big. Yeah, right. Like he'd tell you if it was. Thank God that we have the righteousness of God to keep us strong. To avoid any and every temptation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the the privilege that we have to be doers thereof. Lord, help us to learn to be people after your own heart just like David was. But to avoid his mistakes. We don't find fault with him, Lord, because but for the grace of God, there go us. But, Lord, thank you that we have the strength to overcome any and every temptation of the enemy. Thank you, Lord, that the power of the Holy Ghost keeps us and preserves us. We determine, Lord, that we'll live a life of righteousness, a life of godliness, a life that is a testimony unto others. Let nothing that we do or nothing that we say in our lives, Lord, give the enemies, your enemies, cause to blaspheme because of us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.